in the book of Acts. I'm Anthony, by the way. I'm the pastor uh, at Valley Hope. Should introduce myself. Um, I want to let you all know that uh, I tomorrow morning around four in the morning, my family and I are getting in our truck and driving uh, for 15 and a half hours. And then we're going to get in the truck and drive again another 10 hours. And then the day after that for a few more hours. So we can go camping for a couple weeks out west. Uh, and so you're going to be well taken care of here. Uh, I am not the only person that cares for the people in our congregation. I'm just one of, of several. Uh, and they'll all be here. And they'll be here. The elders, the deacons will be here. Our staff will be here to take care of you. We've got great folks who are filling in the pulpit for the next couple of weeks. David Taylor from Christ Community will be here one week. Uh, uh, a person you don't know, a retired PCA minister who's serving in EPC Church just down the road, named Rick Sawyer, he's going to be here preaching. So uh, you all be well taken care of. I say that to say if you try to get in touch with me to, for me to come help you, I mean, I'll be in the woods. I probably won't get it. So get somebody else. He call the church, email the general contact information, and we will get somebody in touch with you so that you're taken care of. And, uh, and I'll be back with you shortly. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in these days... When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. When they, what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you for your word bearing fruit in the life of this congregation, in the life of your church at large. And God, we pray that it would bear much fruit in our lives individually. We pray that our hearts would be soft and open before you, and that you would call us to yourself, that we would respond to your love with our own love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Chad and I had talked about him uh, sort of making the diaconate more visible from the upfront um, position uh, for a while, and uh, we were trying to plan that out, and I basically just said, logistically, it works better for me if you do it this Sunday, July 4th, and I did not pay attention to what I was preaching that Sunday, um, and so I did not and I'm sorry if this is disappointing. I did not plan this. Um, it just providentially, and by the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, uh, Chad has shared this with you in the same time that we have progressed to this point in the book of Acts. Um, this is the next story that we're covering. Acts chapter 6 is, in many ways, the origins of diaconate ministry in the local church. These people, these men are not called deacons yet, 
But we recognize that as the church, as you can see later as the New Testament develops, you can see that the language of diaconate, ministry of deacons, of ordination, of laying on of hands, all of the ingredients are right here. And so in many ways, we look to this moment at the, as the beginning, the origin of the ministry of deacons in the Christian church. And it is generated by a problem, as great innovation uh, often does. It's generated by a problem. The problem is <clears throat> that this baby church growing up in Jerusalem is not just composed of people, Israelite Christians, who speak Hebrew and live in Israel. They are people who have moved into Jerusalem as well, but they are from Greek-speaking places. So when your text says Hellenists, it's talking about Greek-speaking, probably Jewish people who are in Jerusalem. And we know, as we've looked at the progression of the story in the book of Acts, the church has grown. There are Many, many, many people now, thousands of people in, in this baby organization. And the problem is these Greek-speaking widows are not getting equal treatment in the distribution of food. And so they're kind of putting their hand up and saying like, hey, we're in the back of the line here and, and the food is running out. <clears throat> and this appears to us to be a problem. To be a widow in this place in this time was not merely a matter of losing a partner, a, a somebody that you love. You are in real economic and physical danger as a widow in this society at this time. Uh, women are not able to just generate equal income as their husbands were. And so there, there is real danger in the fact that they are not receiving food. It's highly likely that them not receiving the food in equal measure means they are not eating. <clears throat> and so the apostles say, we have a problem on this hand. We have to take care of these women. And on the other hand, they say, we also have an obligation to continue doing what we're doing which is preaching, teaching the word that Jesus has taught us, and the ministry of prayer, which is probably something worth paying attention to. They, they put prayer and teaching in the same box. Both of these are obligations of their office. We need to solve this problem. So this is a logistical problem, but it's also a values problem, as logistical problems often are. What do you value more than anything else? And how do you operate in accordance with those values to make sure you're doing everything that you feel is important? And so what they say is the team has to expand. We need more people because we just can't do all of these things. And then they turn to the community and they say, identify for us people of good character who can do this. And the community at large identifies these seven men of good character and they say these people fit the bill of what you are describing. And so then in response to the community's identification, the apostles commissioned them 
for this work. They lay hands on these seven men and commission them to this work of making sure that not just these women, these Hellenist widows, but everybody is taken care of in their physical well-being. And as Luke often does, he, he lets you know what the, the result is. Uh, the church multiplies. Again, it continues to spread. Even priests uh, from the order of the priesthood join in to this Christian movement. <clears throat> now, we do not have in the New Testament a, a definitive and prescribed way to order what we call church government. Like, there's no chapter where it says, this is what the organization looks like now and should always look like. If that did exist, it would be very convenient. We would have a lot less denominations. Because there are people who look at the principles of this community and say, I know the best way, we know the best way to solve uh, the problem of modeling these values. But then... You can go down the street, literally, and find somebody else who says, well, actually, we have a better way. And the New Testament doesn't just have like a page I can turn to and say, this is definitely why you should be Presbyterian. I would hold up the whole Bible and say that. No, I'm just kidding. Um, we all have our, our reasons for why we think a church should be organized and governed in the way it should. But we're not going to wade into the details of church government. What we want to look at are these values, these characteristics of a healthy and vibrant church that all of us in the Big C Church care about and should be committed to. And what we should also be committed to as a small C local church, pursuing those things. This local church that's growing as it is, for one, helps us to see there has never been a perfect church. Never. At the very beginning of the story in the New Testament and all the way back into the Old Testament, which we believe is the beginnings of the church, there has never been a slice, a moment, a location where there has been a perfect church. So everybody who today is like, oh, there's so many problems today, there's so many denominations, there's people fighting all the time, we just need to go back to the early church. And what I would just ask you to do is to read the New Testament. And I, I, what I'd like to ask you is, do you really want to go back to that? Have you read 1 Corinthians? Those people are messed up. The church has always been imperfect and is hoping and praying to move towards Closer and closer to the image and likeness of Jesus. And we trust that by God's grace, that will happen, that God will complete that good work. But the New Testament will tell you the truth about the people. Not perfect. These Greek-speaking widows are being neglected. And it's a problem that needs to be fixed. The early church is radically equitable radically committed to values of equality when, within its community. Now, people today like to borrow that language and pretend like the world has created this value that equality uh, is important. Uh, right now, today, people are going to celebrate the language of our founding, that all men are created equal, and what that has to do with government. What we want to be very clear to insist is the Christian community uniquely has contributed that language of equality. 
that idea, the idea that people should be treated equally comes from the Bible. And we can own that in a public sphere, in a public context. And we can own that within our history. And this is one of the distinctive markers of an early church that exploded into life in a Roman Empire that did not believe in equality. Did not believe in it. The New Testament was a a radical testimony to a counter-community where they believed it did not matter where you were from, what language you spoke, your socioeconomic status, when you come into the church, you are entering into a different world that is unlike the world you've been living in. And the foot of the cross is completely level ground. There are no gradations. That's that's part of what's going on in other parts of the New Testament, the book of James, 1 Corinthians, when the apostles will step in and crack some skulls because they, by habit, are sorting out who is more preferable, who is more desirable. But the insistence in the ideals is everyone is equal because God loves people equally. He is a, a perfect creator and has created those people perfectly well despite where they come from or what they look like or the language they speak or how much money they have on and on and on everybody is radically equal in the church we see in this local church community that the the community itself is radically sacrificial and generous These people have bread, not because of their own entrepreneurship, but because the community of the church has sold what they had, brought it into the church, and said, we must care for the physical needs of our people. One of the remarkable things about church history is the places of its uh, brightest vitality throughout time and history are places where the church has actively moved into the streets, swept people in, literally bound their wounds, clothed the naked, fed the hungry, given water to the thirsty. Where they did not say, when Jesus said those things, he was speaking spiritually and metaphorically. They said, when Jesus said to feed hungry people, he meant feed hungry people. And that kind of counter example stuck out. And it required cost to be paid, literally cost to be born. And the people said... The nature and the life of this community together is worth more than the status of my personal bank account. It's sacrificial and generous. And notice too that in this community, there is already, and we'll only see this increasingly in the book of Acts, we're about to speed into this direction There's an emphasis on space for all kinds of people and languages here in the community. Not that they're just equal, but that a a lively and vibrant church pays attention to and makes room 
for people who are not like themselves. And this is easy to step aside and, and step past in the text because you and I are not natural Greek speakers. But what you probably failed to recognize is that every one of the names of those seven men are Hellenist names. Commentators will point this out in every one that I've read. Every one of these seven people are from the overlooked people group. And the community decided to do that. That was not somebody's agenda. It was the community recognized, like, look, we have a problem. By our own instinct and bias, we are overlooking these Hellenists. So who is best to make sure that that does not happen again? Probably the Hellenists. And so what does that require of them? that all of these Hebrew-speaking Christians leave aside the opportunity to grasp for power, to seize it for their own benefit, and instead push all the chips onto their table for the Hellenists and say, you, men of character from this people group, you help us to make sure we don't make this same mistake again. Luke does not tell you those Hellenist names this way for no reason. He's telling you to pay attention to what they are doing. These are included in this. It's, in fact, a recent, relatively recent convert. This next last person, Nicholas, he seems to be from this city that the, the narrative is about to shift to in the book of Acts. He, he's somebody who's come in to Judaism. So this is probably a Gentile convert first into Judaism. And now, as this Greek-speaking Jew, he's being converted to following Jesus. And this is the direction the church is going to intentionally, to structurally make it clear there are room, there's room for all kinds of people. And in this early Christian community, you can already see the, these, this twin and, and uneasy dynamic that all churches still yet struggle with. That this community is truly oriented around the community. Sense of call, this language that we might describe it, the sense of call of who, who is called to this role is not just a function of these seven men saying, uh, it's me, probably, I feel like it's me, and then them saying, well, you said it, so we'll just do that. Already, the community is at work and saying together, actually, we, not I, we believe that you are called so on that, on that one side, you have this, this community commitment. But you also have this real comfort with authority. It's the apostles that put their hands on the men and ordained them. What we would call ordination. It's the community that has uh, helped to be a vehicle of the call, but the community does not make a giant huddle around them and everybody lay hands on them. The apostles do. 
But the apostles have listened to the community. It's this interplay between power and authority and community. And every church everywhere still wrestles with this right mix. And again, I, I just want to say Presbyterians nailed this, okay? But it is these, you have this, uh, this opportunity in a rightly balanced and poised moment for both the wisdom of leadership and the wisdom of the led. So these, these and you can go on, you can spend more time in this text and see uh, how important it is. But listen to what the apostles believe is important. The teaching, prayer, and service. And so at the end of Acts 6, 1 through 7, what's the result? Is they, they, they have maintained the values that they say are most important. The preaching that God has called them to, prayer, and service. In other ways, we might define this uh, as doctrine, devotion, and duty. And these three things are the components of how the church historically, for 2,000 years, has taught people what it means to be a Christian. You learn the Apostles' Creed, you learn the Lord's Prayer, and you learn the Ten Commandments. Doctrine, devotion, and duty is in the DNA of Jesus' church. Now, I am not here today to give you a lecture on ecclesiology. I am not here today to just talk to you about why these structures matter and important. My job here today is to preach to you the good news. The reason why this is important and we don't, we don't step around Acts 6, 1 through 7 to get to the, the exciting part, the, the sort of climactic part that's about to come with one of these men. Is because you need to look at what the Christian community is supposed to be and understand that it is significant because those things are all about Jesus. That the life of a healthy Christian community does not have, is not just ripped out of some divine playbook or pulled out of the air or is not a recipe for strategic growth or organizational health. All of these things that are healthy descriptors of what this Christian community is like is ultimately anchored in what Jesus is like. Jesus is like this. Now, we can take imperfect off the list. That's not what he is like. And that's important because we're going to come back to that. But Jesus is one who we have seen has, for example, given away power to bring people in. That's Philippians 2. That's Paul's whole argument that he who has all the power, sacrificed himself, emptied himself, took on the form of a servant so that you might be served and loved and rescued into the great love of God. Jesus is the one who has told his people, take the message of the gospel to every language and people group. He tells them to make disciples of all peoples. That's Matthew 28. 
And we can see them acting on his character. Where do they think they understood? Where do you think they understood Jesus really must care about teaching and prayer and service? Have you read the Gospels? I would invite you to read any of them. One of the four. Just read it and pay attention to what Jesus does. Because it's pretty much those three things. That's all you see him doing. Teaching, praying, healing. Living, vibrant, active, healthy Christian community is not about organizational structure. It is not about community membership. It is not about making you feel like you have the right logo on the right name tag or on the, your right vehicle tag. Christian community is ultimately about the people of God being integrated into the life of God himself. And when Paul says that Jesus Christ is the head of the body, he means it. That all of the life that we have in our body flows out from him into us. We are still the people who are called to be healers and teachers and prayers because that is who he is. And the challenge and the struggle is that we see all of the imperfections, not just in this people of this text but in our own experience. You and I have both all together been a part of communities that have failed. We have probably people, all of us, probably people in our lives whose life is, is marked by the carnage of churches off the rails. And, and for many people, that becomes the story about the church. This is the place where I was hurt. This is, the, this is the place that has hurt people, who continues to hurt people. It's supposed to. They say it's supposed to be about all these things, but I've seen so much otherwise. We confess that our life flows from the life of Jesus. That is the one thing that we hold to. The second thing that we hold to is we are, though, not Jesus. That we are not. We are frankly unsurprised by the disasters we've seen that have grown up in churches themselves. We're unsurprised. Because the people of the church are the people who still desperately need Jesus. And so your hurts are probably alongside a long list of your own failures. And we can look out to every church building here down the road. I promise you, if you stick around in this church for long enough, which may be half a day or longer, you, you will see the sin. And other people will see the sin that you don't. There, there are things that I have done to you that I don't even know about. Such is the nature of my sin. I think it's entirely possible that people failed to feed Hellenist widows, not because they're like, we don't like Greek speakers. 
but because they were blind to them. The chief mark of the church ought to be repentance. When we are confronted with sin, with our sin, my sin, we don't just look at that long list of things that we ought to be and say, we need to do better. We first say, I have sinned against God and I've sinned against my neighbor and I am in need of his mercy. And from that life of repentance flows health like this. If repentance and turning towards Jesus is not the center of Christian community, then what will inevitably follow is unhealth, disease, destruction, carnage, heartbreak. People of God, the gospel is that you and I have sinned many times by will and by ignorance. That we have lived lives apart from God's love and life. And that in God's own life, as we see and receive in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, anything and everything that I have done to embrace the corruption and disease and death of sin is absolved in the great mercy of God, who after page after page of scripture says, I will be your God. And you will be my people. The relentless mercy of God makes out of us a people that bear his own name. So this morning, if you are here today and you are recognizing, man, my life does not look like this. I'm not sacrificial and generous. I'm not a lot of these things. If you are here today and you're saying, I've been, I, it's been hard to be in this church or to be in any church, frankly, because of what I've seen. I've seen so much sin. And you may still be in the place of, it's always those people over there. And that mirror moment is coming for you when you're going to see those fingers point back at you. That's coming momentarily. If you are here today in the heartbreak of sin in the context of Christian community, I have only one hope for you, and it is Jesus himself. It is only Jesus himself. It is not this church. If you're coming to this church saying, maybe these people will fix it. We're not. I'm not. Nobody here is. Only Jesus. And and you are going to continue to be chased from church to church in disappointment until you can see the clear truth that God will relentlessly put in your face. I will be your God. And you will be mine. It is only ever Jesus. This morning, if you are brokenhearted, if you are wounded and let down, if you are fraught with failure in sin, come put your hope in Jesus. If you are alone and isolated and you are living a life spun off into your own lonely world, this place is the place where God is bringing you into his family, into a community, into a place where you can both contribute and receive. This is what God has for you. This is the plan. 
You don't have to be alone anymore. You don't have to be in, in your own family of your own making and construction and definition. You can be a part of the family of God. You don't have to live your own life anymore. You can live the life of God. So people of God, it, it, the answer is the same for everyone. It's Jesus. It's only Jesus. And this life is what multiplies the church from Jerusalem to the edges of the world and will not stop until the whole universe resounds with the same insistent cry. It's Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's only ever Jesus. And he is enough. There's no one like him. There's no one that's ever been like him or ever will be like him. It's Jesus. It's always only Jesus. People of God, that Jesus is here for you this morning. He called you here himself. Now come and respond to him. This morning, would you come and respond to Jesus? Open up your arms and say, bring me ever deeper into the waters of your love. That I might live at home with you. That I might be your people. And you will be my God. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your great mercy, for your persistence, your faithfulness, your tenderness towards us. God, I pray for people who come in here bearing wounds from, from church, who come bearing wounds uh, of their own making, who have been so profoundly disappointed by what they've seen in church after church after church. And God, I just pray that this morning, that our, our hearts will be stripped away of any answer except you. That we would stop with the reasoning. If they would just, if, if he would just, if she would just, if they would just. And we would start with, it's Jesus. It's all about Jesus. God, we thank you that you have put servants into your church. You have made us a church of servants. And yet, the most surprising thing of all is that you are a God who has come and served us us and father i pray that you would bind up the wounds of your people that you would wash their feet that you would nourish and care for them and father we pray for your help we pray that our lives would more clearly and faithfully reflect what what you do and who you are i pray god that our church together might look like that more faithfully so that your name would be praised and glorified and this valley would be filled with the proclamation of you and your goodness. May it be done by the power of your Holy Spirit to the praise of your name. Amen.